Our scripture today comes from uh, the book of Isaiah, chapter 61. It can be found on page 1157 in your pew Bibles. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance for our God, to comfort all who mourn, and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Aliens will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of the nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, they will rejoice, rejoice in their inheritance. And so they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and iniquity. In my faithfulness, I will reward them and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the gener- nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people that the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. Amen. Within three months in the year 609 BC, Judah saw two of its kings deposed by Egyptian pharaohs one after another, and the third king was an Egyptian puppet. Then four years later, the Egyptians lost a huge battle with the Babylonians, which you would think that would mean that Judah would be free again. But instead, they were basically under new management. The Babylonians conquered and deported about 18,000 skilled Israelites away from their promised homeland to serve them hundreds of miles away. And they gave Judah, again, their own puppet king. When finally Babylon's puppet was causing too much trouble, they came back to Jerusalem, killed all of the children of the king in front of him, then blinded the king so that the death of his children would be the last thing that he sees. By 586 BC, it seemed like every potential king of Israel descended from David was either dead or imprisoned in Babylon. I remember when I first seriously studied this part of the Old Testament, it was around 2017. And I remember thinking that this was all so foreign to me. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing that happens anymore. Kings aren't killed one after another. People aren't deported away from their homelands by the thousands. People aren't made to watch as their sons are killed before they're blinded. Whether it was because I was young or because I didn't keep up with the news or because stuff really was different back then, it didn't seem like the kind of thing that could happen. But I don't think I was alone in thinking that. 
1992, Francis Fukuyama wrote a book that's now kind of infamous called The End of History, which said that there wouldn't be any major wars or famines anymore, anymore because liberal democracies had solved the problem of human government. We figured out how to have peace through social science, economics, and politics. In America, we've been in one war after another pretty constantly, but it's very rarely actually been close to home. There hasn't been a major war on US soil since the time of the Battle of Drainsville 150 years ago. All this has made it so that we can think that the kind of horrific violence that we see in the Bible and in history textbooks isn't something that we'll actually have to face ourselves. But then, just in the last year and a half, we've seen two major wars start. And since everybody has a camera in their pocket 24-7, we've seen the kind of footage that seriously rivals even the worst wars that you see in the Bible. And now we all have to grapple with real, unspeakable evil in our minds when we might have been sheltered from it before. But the people that Isaiah was writing to wouldn't have experienced these things through their phones but firsthand. And they wouldn't be able to send out the videos to, to the world to generate an outcry, but would have no one to tell their story to but God himself. Maybe you felt, felt hopeless before. They certainly did. So Isaiah is preaching to these exiled people who have been forcibly deported from their homeland. Have you ever had to speak with someone who's processing unspeakable tragedy like that? What could he possibly say to these people? What could ever be good enough? And I think this is what is most beautiful about the season of Advent. As we talked about in the last few weeks, Advent is about the hope of Christ's return. But this isn't the kind of hope that's a blind optimism that things will probably work out well. That kind of hope is burned away the moment you look at the footage of what's happening in Israel and Ukraine. As we'll see, this new hope is the kind of hope that can survive even when we see terrible things. The kind of hope that Isaiah is talking about is based on two enduring facts about God's nature. First, it's in God's character to be faithful to his people even when they are unfaithful. Here's what Isaiah says. The spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the leer of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. In the ancient world, this announcement had a very specific meaning. It meant that by the decree of the king, everybody's slate is wiped clean. If you're someone who's ran up a ton of debt, your debt is forgiven. If you had to sell yourself into slavery, you'd be freed. If you were banished from your homeland, you'd be allowed to return. If taxes had gotten too burdensome, the taxes would be reformed. The word for all of this was called deror, and that's actually the word that's translated liberty in this verse. In other words, every wrong in the whole society would be forgiven just because the king said so. The slate is wiped clean and we're starting fresh. In the book of Isaiah, he says that Israel would go into exile away from its homeland because it sinned against God for centuries and broke the covenant he made with them. This was the punishment for constant law-breaking in Deuteronomy, even many years before Isaiah wrote. Israel was created to be God's blessed people, a vineyard planted so that its fruit of righteousness would spread to the whole world and be set right. But Israel failed to be what they were meant to be because they failed to follow the Torah for centuries. They were meant to be God's spouse, but they had been unfaithful and worshipped other gods. And when they were carried off away from their homeland, it would have looked like God had abandoned them. It would have looked like the whole covenant was off, 
and he was destroying the vineyard of Israel and starting place somewhere else. It would have looked like the marriage was over and God had given up on them. But instead, God said to Israel that he was wiping their slate completely clean just because he said so. And Israel would be empowered to be everything they were always meant to be. And if Israel was a vineyard that was meant to bear the fruits of righteousness, God said in verse 10, As the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. And if Israel was God's spouse, God said, God has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom adecks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Israel and God would renew their vows and remain together forever. Israel's sins were forgiven and her slate wiped clean of centuries of sin just because God said so. All of this was true simply because of God's own character. It is the center of the Old Testament witness that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and always ready to forgive his people, even of his worst sins. His compassion is easily aroused at his people's suffering, and he never forgets or forsakes them. He says in chapter 49, Can a mother forget the child at her breast? Though she may forget, I will never forget you. So in times of war and unspeakable evil, when we see people who have no one to cry out to, we can remember God's character. God sticks with his people even in the worst times, even when they are simply facing the results of their own sin. He cannot simply sit and watch this terrible suffering forever without provoking his compassion. If God was so ready to forgive the people of Israel after centuries of sin, if their suffering provoked his vengeance against those who perpetrated that evil, then how much more is God ready to relieve the suffering of the innocent? God knows what it's like to suffer unspeakable evil because Jesus felt it on the cross. When people cry out to God in their suffering, it doesn't fall on deaf ears. And finally, if we believe that it's in God's character to stick with his people, even in the worst times, and if we pray that God would show his presence to those facing evil, then it may just be our own duty to do what's necessary so that they will feel God's presence. If we are really emotionally affected by that footage, we should pray that God gives us ways to make his presence known to the people we worry about. And we should be ready to actually act on it when God puts it on our hearts. Sometimes we ask where God is in a terrible situation when God is asking us to be the hands and feet of Jesus and the presence of God there. Where is God? He dwells in us. And so we should be the ones that feel that God, that are with the ones that feel that God is not with them. The second reason for enduring hope in the face of war is God's justice. The text says, I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Now, war might be the most obvious impact of the kingdom of this world. It might be the most obvious place where the kingdom of this world is different from the kingdom of Christ. In war, it becomes clear that in the kingdom of this world, might makes right. Deep in our minds, we know that the stronger bully isn't right simply because he's stronger. We know that having the right missiles and having the right bombs doesn't mean your cause is moral. But when war breaks out, you'd be tempted to think that way. Because look around. 
Do the bombs care that you have a well-reasoned argument? Very often, war doesn't care about justice. You lie and cheat and steal and burn and destroy, and it makes sense because if you don't, the enemy will. But the gospel says that in the end, might doesn't make right, because all will have to submit to the righteous judgment of God. And God loves justice and hates robbery and wrong. The Egyptians and the Babylonians thought that their bigger armies made them right. They could have believed that for a while, but in the end, God's justice prevails, and their might is laughable compared to that of God. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage, and their peoples plot in vain against the Lord and against his Christ? The one who sits in heavens laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. Might doesn't make right, and we see that most clearly on the cross. The evil powers of this world came together to destroy the rightful king of this world, and they used their very favorite tool, which was brutal murder. Jesus could have sent down armies of angels to kill them, and he may have been justified in doing it. But Jesus showed on the cross that love makes right, and he suffered and died for his people in obedience to God. In doing so, he triumphed over the evil ideologies that are based on force by showing that his kingdom is based on a different kind of power than the powers of missiles and tanks and bombs. It's based on the power of self-giving love that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So when we sing, joy to the world, the Savior reigns, that is the incredible hope that we are confessing. We are singing that Christ has triumphed over the power that's displayed in war, and the might doesn't actually make right, even if it looks like it does. It's a protest song. We're saying that Jesus Christ, the one crucified on the cross, reigns over this world, and not any of the other evil powers that use their weapons against us or against him. They stand in rebellion against the all-powerful God that rules from, from the, in the world from the cross, and they will be judged and stripped of their honor and glory. They're on borrowed time. Instead, our participation in the love and suffering of Christ makes us right. We might be tempted when we see terrible things on the news to say, we need to drop our nukes and make that place a parking lot. They deserve it. And it's understandable, but that's the easy path. That's the path of this world. Christ is calling us to the hard and creative path of love and faithfulness, even when it would feel really good to do otherwise. How we work that out practically is very rarely simple and requires us to really lean on God's understanding and not our own base instincts. But when we do that, we're pledging our allegiance to the kingdom of Christ, which is based on love and not fear. This Advent, our focus has been on developing Christian hope. A couple of weeks ago, we said that Christian hope is best expressed in the words of Sam in The Lord of the Rings. There's some good in this world, and it's worth fighting for. We said that Christian hope, compared to everyday hopes that we have, is profoundly active. It says, there's some good in this world, and it's worth fighting for. And you can easily give up on the fight if you think it's hopeless. If you think that war is just a part of this world, you'll give up praying for the end of it. You might even join in and cheer on its destruction. But the Bible constantly gives us hope for a world where war is no more. We are called to be representatives of that world here on earth. And to give up praying for the end of war is a failure of Christian hope. But as representatives of that world here, we're called to do a lot more than just pray. 
We might be helpless in the face of giant geopolitical wars, but we have conflicts here in our lives too. And we were called to be representatives of the kingdom of peace there as well. And in Advent, we're praying not only that Jesus would return and set the whole world right, but that he would be born into each of our lives and set those right too. So here's a couple of examples. The church was meant to be a unified group of people that bear witness to the world about the love and unity that come from the new heavens and new earth. But the church has simply failed at that vocation far too often. The easiest evidence for that is that we no longer just have one church, but literally thousands of denominations. Methodist, Lutheran, Catholic, Anglican, Brethren, Baptist, Pentecostal, there's too many to name. Our own denomination is going through another split as we speak. So many Christians have decided that they can't live and worship with one another because of the small points of doctrine. And that doesn't mean that the disagreements aren't serious, but it does mean that we have seriously lost sight of Jesus' vision for a unified church, which he prayed for just before he went to the cross in John 17. The church has taken on the logic of the kingdom of this world, that it's not worth the hard work of staying together when it's easier just to split apart. I really hope that our church's work with GFAM, with Smith Chapel, and with nearby brethren churches might help to heal those wounds. And honestly, those people at those churches are awesome. And you'd have a lot of fun meeting them if you haven't already. We may not be able to bring the whole church back together again, but we can help to bring peace to the church in Northern Virginia. We also need Jesus to come and set our own personal relationships right. In the new heavens and new earth, we won't have to worry about deep and loving friendships ending. But in the meantime, we can do what we can to make sure that there's peace in our own relationships. Just like with other churches, we have the tendency to think that when friendships become difficult, the easiest thing to do is to cut our losses and run. We might still feel bitter, we might still feel angry, but it's much harder to process those emotions and still hang out with those people than it is just to find new people to hang out with. That's especially true in these days. It used to be that maybe, there were maybe 100 people in your village, and those were all the people you would ever really know. If you were good friends with one of them, it would be really hard to find a replacement for them if that relationship turned sour. Plus, everybody knew everybody, so if you held a grudge with somebody, it would affect your relationships with everybody else. Now, we have literally millions of options to simply replace the people we don't like. We could even go online and find billions of people who think more like we do. But the relationships we find when we replace other people are far cheaper and more shallow than the ones we could have had if we stuck around. That's especially true because once you replace somebody with someone else, both people in the new friendship know that it's expendable. You both know you're going to leave when, once things get, don't, aren't easy. And friendships made online are even more shallow. So this is part of why our society has more opportunities for socializing than ever before, but we still feel more lonely than any other generation. We all feel that our friendships are ultimately expendable. We can give up on them whenever we want. And we're all angry and bitter about what happened in previous friendships too. We need the hope of Christ to tell us that giving up on friendships is not the way it's supposed to be, and we should do what it takes to make peace in them. So God is coming this Advent to make peace in this world. He's making peace in the great wars, but he's also bringing peace to the church and to our own relationships. 
It's our duty in Advent to hope for God's coming to make these things right. In the meantime, we can live out the witness in our own lives, making peace wherever we see conflict. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, come to our lives today and be born anew in our relationships so your people could live in peace and show the world what it looks like when you're with them. Amen.